0: Hi, welcome to the Two Nobodies podcast. I'm your host, Rupesh Patel. This episode that you're about to listen to is why I do what I do when it comes to hosting this podcast. I just had the most wholesome conversation with Prakash Deer, a human rights lawyer, human rights advocate who now lives here in Canada. And we talk about systemic racism in Canada. We talk about individual racism. We talk about how diversity, equity, and inclusion training, where it's landing well and where it's falling short what we should expect from our political leaders. How do we move forward on this issue? We also talk about his past in South Africa and how what it was like to live during the apartheid period to one of his most famous cases that he defended six people and known as the Sharpeville Six. We finally end the conversation on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and get his thoughts on what's happening right now with South Africa and then putting something into the International Court of Justice. It's a fascinating conversation. I hope you listen to it and stay tuned and enjoy.
1: Welcome to the Two Nobodies podcast with my dad.
0: Prakash, it's so nice to see you, my friend. Thank you for making time and joining the Two Nobodies podcast today.
1: Oh, no, thank you, Rukesh, for the invitation. And uh, I'm definitely a nobody, so that makes two of us.
0: It's it's really. I was telling my wife this morning. I was like, "This is." I'm a bit anxious. I'm not going to lie because um, your story, which I want to get into, and just your background and your commitment to human rights, it it truly is an honor for me uh, to to be able to speak to you today and to talk about you know a number of topics, whether it be systemic racism in Canada, whether it be you know your time in South Africa and some of the uh, important proceedings that you you were a part of. Uh, to even the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So just to be able to tap into your brain and be curious with you for the next, you know, 90 minutes or so, it truly is an honor. So thank you, really.
1: No, thank you. It's my pleasure, you know, and uh, don't forget, uh, you know, I, I'm just sharing my experiences, but uh, I truly consider myself as a nobody, but uh, happy to share my experiences.
0: Thank you. Thank um, you have an interesting story like i know we've talked about this offline when we when you think about systemic racism in canada like what what brought you to what brought you to really continue your work from south africa into canada and continue this kind of focus on human rights like you had such a interesting journey in the past but like you could have easily just been like you know what i had my I had my time, I did a lot of work there, but I want to continue this fight. Like, it's so amazing that you continue to pursue this work.
1: Yeah, it's a a long story and a long answer, perhaps, but I'll try and summarize it for you. You know, uh, um, and maybe we'll get back into it a little later uh, and some of your other questions. Uh, But as you know, I was born and raised in South Africa uh, of Indian ancestry, third generation, blah, blah, blah. I was involved in a lot of human rights cases. And uh, for my own personal safety, I had to, of course, leave the country. And when I came to Canada, I had to re-qualify uh, a- as a lawyer. Although I had practiced for about seven years in South Africa, I had to re-qualify. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I-, I went to law school at Ottawa U, uh, at the law faculty, uh, common law faculty. A- and while I was in class, in one of the classes, my professor, who also taught... Um, um, uh, uh, legal clinical, uh, uh, the legal aid, uh, legal clinical aid, or I'm saying it the other way around, uh, legal aid uh, clinic, clinic that he yeah. ran, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and he had a, he had somebody who wanted assistance, and and this person's name was Dr. Chunder Grover, mm-hmm. and Dr. Grover was a highly qualified scientist uh, with a PhD and, and very impressive fellow working at the NR, uh, National, Research, uh, Cent- NR- National Research Center, I believe it was called, NRC. Mm. Yeah. And and, and he, he had a complaint of discrimination against uh, uh, his employer on the basis of race. And my professor, uh, whose name was David Bennett, by the way, uh, mm. Professor Bennett, uh, knew I had experience as a litigator. And he asked me to join him as a co-counsel. And I had arrived in 89. And I think this case started in 1990, so it was yes. soon. While I was requalifying, I became involved uh, in the human rights complaint of Dr. Grover, and and of course it it was you know right up my alley so to say, and uh, it wasn't difficult uh, you know to, but it, it it made me realize that you know um, I've come from one system of oppression in a in a very different way, mm-hmm. and I was coming here to Canada. And uh, they have issues which are different, of course, uh, you know, than what I was used to. But there was an allegation here and and a very credible one. And of course, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we proved, uh, which was very difficult in the Canadian way to prove uh, discrimination because it is practiced in such a subtle and sophisticated way in in Mm. which I was not used to. Uh, So that... And then I got, you know, requalified, of course, and I got many other cases of note. I won't mention all of them, but they, they invariably had to do with racial discrimination. Mm-hmm. I'll just mention one more: uh, Dr. Shiv Chopra, uh, who was a wonderful, bright, uh, you know, doctor as well. Uh, and then I did his case. You know, we succeeded uh, in his case as well. And then we had a bunch of complaints coming. Uh, you know, my first job, by the way, when I requalified. Because I was exposed in the Dr. Grover case with the Canadian Human Rights Commission, I was very fortunate to get a, a job as legal counsel at the Canadian Human Rights Commission. Okay, yeah. And so while at the Canadian Human Rights Commission, I had a lot of these uh, cases coming up, and then uh, through Dr. Shiv Chopra, who was a you know uh, the principal driver of, of, of this case, uh, we, we found that. There were so many cases against the government of Canada on systemic racial discrimination allegations that we had a sort of a quote unquote class action uh, by a major uh, organization called the National Capital Alliance on Race Relations. Uh, Mm -hmm. The acronym was NCAR, N C A R R, Mm -hmm. where the central allegation NCAR was making was that the government of Canada was discriminating in the public, uh, federal public service. Of what they call quote unquote visible minorities Mm. from moving into senior management positions. And it was a lengthy trial. And, uh, you know, it was like an over 40, 45 day trial. And at the end of the day, uh, we won a very successful uh, order proving that, uh, you know, as difficult it was in terms of evidentiary burden of proving discrimination uh, because it's practiced in such a subtle and sophisticated way. Um, we, we got a really big order. So that's what really brought me in uh, to practice, you know, in the human rights area. And then thereafter, I got exposed, of course, to uh, uh, indigenous issues, yeah, which I didn't know too much about. And then, you know, uh, and uh, so so the transition for me was sort of almost natural, you know, coming from South Africa. And yeah, I could have taken another path. I article actually with a criminal law firm, a wonderful one of them most uh, senior uh, litigators in criminal law. Mm-hmm. I articled uh, with him. Uh, but, you know, I had enough of criminal law, so I said, <laughs> no, I don't want to practice criminal law yeah. anymore. Yeah. I'm going to rather focus on, on on human rights.
0: Yeah. What drove you, like, in terms of, like, yeah, what what kept you engaged when you were in South Africa? And does that still remain true now? Like, what makes you tick, Prakash?
1: You know, I think at the end of the day, um, it's justice, right? Uh, truth and justice, mm. uh, the rule of law. I think. I think uh, if I could summarize it that way, I think that's what you know drives me or ticks me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I mean, many countries, including Canada, we know talk about democracy and the rule of law. Yeah. But uh, to what extent do we really, you know, practice that? You know, or, or I mean, uh, you know, can we improve, even if we are practicing some of that? Uh, but we should be practicing that, you know, not for some of the time, all of the time, right? Mm-hmm. Because the rule of law, in my view, should be applied equally to everyone, no matter who the litigants are before, you know, uh, the parties or yeah. which countries, you know, for that matter. You know, if you're talking in the international arena of international human rights, you know. So, so I think, uh, you know, uh, the rule of law is important to me, you know, humanitarian law is important to me, human rights is important to me. I guess because, you know, I grew up in the system of oppression mm-hmm. where we were not even given the right to vote. I mean, when I say we, I'm talking about anybody who was not white. Sure. And and only whites were like less than 10% of the population. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they, uh, they, they had all the power and all the privilege, uh, you know. So uh, I guess growing up in that environment, you know, uh, gave me a sense of, of justice uh, that was not right. And and when, uh, you know, I came to Canada and I learned more about indigenous rights and indigenous peoples and the colonization and, uh, you know, how uh, indigenous peoples have not really been treated well in the legal system I'm talking mm-hmm. about, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, as a lawyer, you know, uh, you, I, I try to find, uh, you, you know, as lawyers and as a litigator, you know, it's based on facts and law, right? and context. And so that's, that's, I think, what, uh, what makes me, uh, you know, question certain things, some of the times.
0: You you um, would think that, go ahead, Prakash.
1: Yeah, no, 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 I just said that, you know, I hope I answered your question, you know, but uh, yeah, so, you know, to me, it really doesn't matter uh, who the offender or who the perpetrator is, mm. you know, I think, I think in order to be credible, uh in order not to be a hypocrite uh, you know uh one needs to be consistent in the rule of law in the application of the law no matter who the offender may be you know uh, uh we shouldn't make exceptions for some and, and not others because then you lose all credibility
0: yeah you bring a you bring a great point. And I actually I was gonna say, like you'd think that um trying to understand the underlying injustices in a system is something that would bring everybody together. But it seems like mm-hmm. nowadays and and I don't know how prevalent this conversation is, but you see it come up with with really, you know, mainstream people of how people uh something about talking around systemic racism or racism mm-hmm. in a country or in a system. Um, irks people. Like it It, it bothers people. Yeah. And, and I don't always understand why, because of the way you just framed it. Like we should all be trying to understand, we should all try to understand what the different injustices are, regardless of the color of your skin or whoever it is, right? We should all be on board with that. But as soon as we start talking about there's systemic racism in a country or systemic racism in a system, um, or whatever it might be, it's it's starting to irk people. What do you what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, that, that's a really good question. And you know, um, uh, well, uh, let, let's back up, and I'll, I'll try and answer it as best as I I, I can. You know, systemic racism uh, is also known as institutional racism, mm-hmm. right? It, it, it essentially, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, of course. You know, it, it refers to the ways. Uh, that whiteness and, and white superiority becomes uh, embedded in the policies uh, and the practices of, a, of an institution, right, resulting in systemic, uh, I would say, uh, that advantages white people uh, and disadvantages indigenous peoples, uh, people of color, mm-hmm. notably either in employment, in education, in the justice system, in mm-hmm. the health system, and in so, in so society uh, generally, right? So, in a country like Canada, which is a colonial state, colonial country, systemic racism, I think, is deeply rooted in every you know uh, in every systems of this country. Uh, this means that you know uh, systems were put in place uh, or, or designed uh, many, many, many decades ago uh, to benefit white colonists hmm. while disadvantage uh, disadvantaging disadvantaging. Uh, indigenous peoples uh, mm-hmm. who had lived here, you know, prior to colonization, right? So this power dynamic um, continues to be upheld and reinforced in our society, extending, mm-hmm. you know, to its impact uh, uh, on the law and how people are treated. Now, uh, I must say that, you know, uh, uh, although this is not about me, but I'm going to talk to you a little bit about my experience, Absolutely. right? Yeah. uh uh I think you know there are there are. I, I've experienced uh, you know my, myself some racism. But before I talk about that, you know, I, I think um, to answer your question, if I you know got it properly, why people react the way they are, uh, I, I think uh, you know, I think it's got to do with uh, people not really sometimes sometimes I'm saying uh, aware uh, of, of 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 what's happening. Uh, and and people uh, grow up in in you know different uh, you know parts of their lives. Uh, most people grow up in a bubble. I mean, just look at uh, our in, uh, history of indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. That was never taught in school. I mean, I'm no. talking about the true history of indigenous yep. people. Never taught in school, right? No. Just a case in point: the colonization, including Indian residential schools and and slavery as well. Yeah. So there's a lot of There is a lot of what I would, I call sometimes white supremacy, you know, that sometimes individuals don't even realize it. Uh, So the white privilege protects people from experiencing what indigenous people's experience or black and brown people experience. Mm. And so sometimes uh, they are triggered because they think they are being attacked. Mm. Uh, They're being named or they're being shamed. Mm -hmm. And that is never the intention, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to speak truth to power. Mm -hmm. Uh, if we want to change things so for the most people for the most part from my own personal experience uh, people are good and when they are educated about the injustice or about the true facts or the true history uh, then you know they can see the wrong and they can recognize it right Mm -hmm. Um, you know there's a quote by uh, it's the culture you you grow up in right that's what I'm trying to say that's Mm -hmm. why people react the way that they react you know, um, there, there's a sociologist, he, he passed away not too long ago, a uh, 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 person from Holland. His name was Hurt uh, Hofstadter. Okay. Uh, you know, and he said, he said, uh, uh, this is how we described culture. Uh, so- simply said, culture is how you were raised. Mm. It developed while you grew up. Mm. Uh, with a computer metaphor, culture is a so- software of the mind. Uh, so, like that, yeah. so I mean, <laughs> so you know, when you think about it, uh, just recently, we had the tragic case of of Joyce Eckert, uh, Asher one, who uh, you know uh, in Quebec, uh, you know, while she was dying, uh, you know, uh, she was doing a live feed of how the nurses were treating her, and she was she was you know not treated well, uh, as everybody knows, you know. And, and 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 of course statements by by people like the premier uh, of, of of Quebec, uh, mm-hmm. Premier Legault, uh, you know, say no, there's no systemic racism, mm-hmm. or uh, the former uh, commissioner of of the RCMP, Brenda Lackey, did not understand what systemic racism is. You know, mm-hmm. she had to be educated about that. You know, so sometimes people are surprised or even shocked when I tell them about my racial profiling, Mm. you know, in how I and a fellow black colleague, whenever I used to work with the Department of Justice, just recently, just before the pandemic, you know, we were racially profiled uh, at the Calgary airport, you know, uh, by the RCMP, you know. So people are shocked when you tell them these things, you know, Uh, so because that's not their lived experience, right? right? I'm talking about generally white people. That's why I think they react the way they do.
0: Do you think there's this conflation then with like their own individual self and individual ra- racism with systemic racism? Like they, like there is true institutional systemic racism that's happening, but people look within themselves and are like, "Well, you know, I'm not. I don't. I'm not racist. I don't express any racist tendencies. So this doesn't make sense to me." Do you think there's that conflation or mixing up that's happening?
1: Uh, I think you you you're absolutely right, uh, Rukesh. You know. Uh, uh, there's a lack of understanding of where racism is, what institutional mm-hmm. racism is, but after all, you know, institutional racism is made up by in- individuals, right? Yeah, yeah. Those institutions are built by individuals, so, yeah. so yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, there's a history, right? The history of colonization, uh, the history of slavery, you know, uh, and and in Canada in particular, I mean, uh, Doctor. What was the name? Uh, uh, Racial St- uh, uh, S- sellers, sellers uh, okay. Doctor Rachel Zellers, Yeah, mm. she did wonderful research, you know, about how entrenched in the institution, uh, you know, um, and in the hiring process, in particular, of the federal public service. And she goes back and she traces, you know, where uh, Black, Brown, and Indigenous people uh, uh, participated in the World Wars. Right? Mm-hmm. But when 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 those who were not white came back uh, from the wars, they were discriminated against. Those who were not white, of course, they were not accommodated in terms of jobs or training. Uh, you know, only whites were. And she also gives more recent examples, like you know, uh, for example, uh, women. You know, women were treated unequally. You know, in 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 society and including in the workspace. And so they had they they tried to address. Uh, treating women uh, more equitably, and so what happens? And I'm talking about the 60s and 70s, more, mm-hmm. and, more and maybe some to the 80s. Uh, women were promoted, uh, you know, significantly uh, to try and, and, and bridge that gap. But you know what happened, Rupesh? Is only white women seem to have benefited f- from that. Not indigenous women, not black women, not brown. Mm-hmm. Women. A similar example she gave was, you know. Uh, uh, French-speaking Canadians were also discriminated in the the federal public service, for example. Mm -hmm. They were not treated equally and well. uh, Mm -hmm. And and so they had to address that, you know, with with the Languages Act and everything else. And so uh, now you find a greater representation of people who who are French-speaking. But again, interestingly enough, there are many black, brown, and indigenous people who are French-speaking but they have been excluded from from the process, mm. you know. So so those are uh, those are institutions, but they were created yes. by uh, by individuals. And, and here's the thing: although the law on on the books, uh, when you talk about the constitution uh, or you talk uh, you know um, uh, you know uh, 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 you talk about human rights legislation uh, across the provinces in in the federal public service, it seems to be neutral, right uh, mm-hmm. on the face of it. Mm -hmm. But it's the application of their policies and practices that results in where we are. Right. Um, You know, I talked to you earlier about the the NCAR case in 1997, where we we, we proved systemic discrimination against the government of Canada, Mm -hmm. as represented by Her Majesty at that time. Yeah. The Treasury Board and the Public Service. Now, that was about 27 years ago. Yeah. Fast forward, to, you know, almost 30 years ago, uh, 30, almost three decades now, we're back to square one where we have a black class action against the government for, you know, racially uh, treating people unequally based on their color. Mm-hmm. And there's very strong prima facie evidence of that. Mm. And you know, just a few months ago, you have the Canadian Human Rights Commission, which is, you know, um, mandated... To address uh, these issues, they themselves were found by the, yeah. uh, but you know, to have discriminated against his own uh, racialized employees, you know. So anyway, uh, those
0: are, that that case in particular, that last one. I mean, those are the ones where you just like cringe, right? Because um, at a time where people are having the the faith in our institutional in our demo- democratic institutions it feels like at an all time yeah. low. When you hear like the Canadian Human Rights Commission is uh yeah. is is having these kind of uh uh these issues that really yeah. you know reduces your faith quite a bit.
1: Yeah, it does. But you know, as we said, uh in our struggle uh in South Africa for freedom, the struggle mm. continues, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh and and uh, it went on to say, you know, victory is certain, but we don't know when that victory is, and that's why yeah. the, the 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 struggle continues.
0: Yeah. You were talking about uh, earlier, uh, like, you know, the case in Quebec and Premier Legault or uh, former RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lackey, and, you know, just mm-hmm. their, their lack of understanding or recognition about institutional systemic racism. When you see leaders like that, whether it be in Canada or any country, you know, the United States, obviously, that comes out a lot. Um, when you see these political leaders or you know uh, institutional leaders almost fall short in that regard, what goes through your mind?
1: Well, we have our work cut out for us, you know, and, yeah. and uh, we got to expose, uh, you know, educate, expose, whatever it is, you know. Um, and some of it is deliberate, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but but so how do you how do you fight the system? I guess you know that's that's the right. question, right? Yeah. You know, um, you know, systemic racism is like it it is a ripple effect, you know, from years uh, of racist and discriminatory practices. Uh, So as individuals, it is normal to feel discouraged and powerless sometimes. Mm -hmm. But, you know, uh, from from being more mindful of the ways the systems work uh, to promoting social accountability, uh, you know, that one can take. So so what do we do? I think we got to reflect firstly. Except, I think you know, without without accepting the truth and acknowledging the truth, I don't think you can move ahead. I'm, mm. I'm talking about those who deny, right? Yeah, because you know, uh, truth and reconciliation—that's how it goes, right? Both in South Africa, yeah, in Canada, and mm-hmm. other parts of the world as well. So the truth comes before reconciliation. <laughs> mm-hmm. You got to acknowledge the truth first, and if you yeah. don't, then you're not you're not getting out the gates, right? So accepting that racism lives within our society. I think is an important first step, right, and so and then you got to go reflect on the different ways that that inter, there's an intersectional lens as well i mean I'm just summarizing in in the best way I can right, and so sometimes you know um uh one may can feel uncomfortable, but you know this in speaking the truth you know, and you sh- you should feel uncomfortable uh because uh, like Senator Murray Sinclair, you know who was the commissioner of mm-hmm. the Truth and Reconciliation Commission you know he said it well like you know he said if you're not if you're not uncomfortable then you're not doing something right mm. you know because people need to to face these hard facts you know yeah. uh, so but but you know so that sets a solid foundation i think to explore you know um, the complexities uh, of discrimination in my mind i mean i'll summarize this i mean you got to educate yourself you know and mm. and you got to speak up as well but the bottom line for me is there's got to be a political will. It's as simple as that, you know. If you have the political will, you can make fundamental, uh, transformational changes. Uh, but that political will always seems to be lacking, you know. And, and we are not in power, right? Uh, the political
0: will for what, Prakash?
1: For 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 really addressing this head on, mm-hmm. and, and 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 let there be accountability because that is lacking, right? Um, mm-hmm. People get away with this all the time, you know. Why? Because you can get away with it. Yeah. You know. Uh, so they, so so that's why I'm talking about a political world to really want to change things. I mean, uh, you can talk about you know accountability, especially in 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 the in the employment situation. Mm-hmm. People, you know, managers, line managers, senior managers, they say some terrible things, you know, or not only really say it but practice it. And uh, there's no accountability. Yeah. So, so
0: that, that's a that's a really you good know,
1: point. Education is important. You know, I give the benefit yeah. of the doubt to to everybody. You know, uh, that maybe they're not aware, and they may need to be aware. And in my humble opinion, I've met wonderful Canadians from the start, based in South Africa, uh, Canadian officials at the embassy, uh, high commission in South Africa. Wonderful people came here to Canada. Wonderful people. When they know the truth, I think their hearts are good. They want to do the right thing. And I'm speaking mm-hmm. generally, of course, mm-hmm. but that's my experience. The majority of them are really good people. Mm-hmm. When I mean, for the longest time, people didn't understand the Indian residential schools or what really happened. And, and uh, you know, I did a lot of training at the Department of Justice. I trained over 2,000 people wow. on reconciliation, Yeah, you know and one of the things we talked about of course was indian residential schools and and i was doing this training together with my uh, indigenous partners uh, in this and and most people were shocked in what they were hearing and learning and and one of the things we quoted uh, my 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 colleague uh, uh, who helped uh, you know deliver this part of the training uh she said, and she quoted. Um, her name is Jennifer David, and, and Jennifer David quoted one of the commissioners. Uh, uh, she said, and it just slips my mind. Uh, Marie Wilson, Marie Wilson. Okay. She said, you know, because they they in, in in the in the in the in the search and for the truth and reconciliation report, they went to as many residential schools as they could. Mm-hmm. You know what she said? She said, not every. Indian residential schools had a playground, but everyone had a graveyard. Now, can you believe that the school had a graveyard? And and this was before the discovery, you know, in Kamloops, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. three about three years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, so people are becoming more conscious about this. They becoming knowledgeable about this. And so, you know, I, I always give people the benefit of the doubt. And, you know, uh, Nelson Mandela, who's, you know, one of my heroes, of course, you know, uh, he's famously quoted as saying, you know, education is the most powerful weapon Mm -hmm. which you can use to change the world. Mm. And, of course, the other one is, you know, going in line with that is uh, uh, I have a huge poster in the entrance of my home of Mandela. And it it says, uh, you know, um, uh, it always seems impossible until it is done there is no easy walk to freedom anyway, Mm. you know? So that's what I meant, Uh, you know, our struggle continues.
0: Education is a powerful tool. I mean, we're seeing uh, more and more, whether it be private firms or definitely in the public service, this focus on diversity and inclusion training, all these sort of things. What do you think is working well with DNI training, and what do you think? Where do you think we're falling short with it? Because, again, yeah. similar similar to like when we when we talked about like in the mainstream, you're hearing noise around um, people's views on uh, or critiques of like, oh, there's no systemic racism in my country, yada yada yada. Similarly, there's becoming there is criticism now around DNI training and whether. You know yeah. we've gone too far or whatever it might be what's where Where do you feel like we're falling short and where do you think what do you think we're doing well when it comes to niger
1: yeah uh good questions <laughs> I speak a lot uh, we can speak a lot a lot about this, but uh, I'll try and, and, and paraphrase it um let me start off by saying that there is very little difference being made in this space, okay because like you mean the, uh, you
0: mean the impact of this of this work. In the impact, or? yeah. Okay. In interesting. The impact of this work. Yeah. Okay.
1: yeah. And, and I say this uh simply because uh most of it seems like window dressing if I call it window dressing is performative. You know, and uh and companies and, and and government departments, you know, they uh I don't think they are are that serious about uh, about achieving real results. There's no real will, you know. Uh, they will talk about it. They will not put enough resources uh, into it, right? And and they will not even have what I was just a few moments ago talking about accountability mm. to give real effect to the changes, right? So the DEI space, I think, uh, has a lot of uh, work still to be done. Uh, I think especially since the murder of uh, George Floyd, Mm. you know we more people became a, more conscious and aware and i think not only that i think more people were willing to stand up and be counted mm. uh, and and raise their voice about injustice um but uh you know already you know you see you see people saying well we've done enough you know done enough for what you know what are the results right i mean if you have one or two token appointments uh, at some levels you know, you you haven't done anything really, in my view. Mm-hmm. You know, you haven't you haven't reached critical mass, and that's what you need for the momentum. You know, to continue. Uh, but if a you critical if you're a critical mass of what, Prakash? Of representation. Sorry, I got it. Of okay. people, uh, uh, yeah. Of, of representation. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, you got to reflect the society in which you know the society is made up of. You know, and we don't have that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that that that's uh, that's my point. And if you have this critical mass, I think you know you you will have sufficient people uh, turnover. And, and you know what? Uh, to, to, I mean, we're not asking uh, for handouts as 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 minorities. I I would be willing uh, at any time, any day of the week, on merit, you know, be be valued, one hundred percent. You know,
2: yeah,
1: you know. And and, and 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 I mean, they, they. I mean, this whole question of merit is another topic, right, mm. <laughs> on its own. Uh, they have made exceptions where it suits them. Example, you know, I talked about the people coming back from the army, mm-hmm. world wars. Uh, talked about women. Mm-hmm. I talked about you know French speaking people. Something. The what Doctor Zeller is talking about that is the merit principle, really, and how it's been amended and and flexible in some cases. But true merit, I'm talking about true merit. Any day of the week, uh, we are as smart as anybody else, and we are as hardworking as anybody else. Mm-hmm. Right, and so, but that is lacking. So there's in my, I mean, you you look at the United States, and some of that is now creeping into to Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, you 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 see that people are banning, I mean, they're outlawing at institutions, yes, the, the teaching of true history of slavery, of colonization, and of oppression and discrimination, right? Uh, not only in schools, in, in, in elementary schools or high schools, but even at yep. universities, you know, that is shocking, right? Uh, so, you know, uh, I mean, this whole anti-woke uh, movement, I mean, woke is just being alive and alert to the issues. what so the truths are, yeah, yeah. And, in the truth yeah, yeah. And, and, and there's a problem with that they say no, you shouldn't be alive to these issues you know we like the status quo you know yeah let it go because white supremacy is what we want to protect in the end right. of the day right i mean it's crazy yeah i in yeah. 20 i mean this 2023 2024 now it it boggles the mind you know it absolutely boggles the mind it does but that's what we are up against
0: yeah do you do you know the comedian trevor noah have you I ever heard of know him? Of him. He's, I he's, know him
1: very well. <laughs> I know him very well. He's South African of he course. Is. Yeah, I know yeah. him very well. Yeah, yeah. He's, I don't
0: yeah. know if you've seen his recent Netflix special but he talks about like um just like all the cultural war talk in the United States and he's like he's like people from around the world they view what's going on in North America or the United States and they think you're crazy. They're like they're like no one's talking about this stuff. There's so much common ground between people. No one is talking about all these different differences and all these things that people want to highlight and peg people against each other. He's like, it's ridiculous. Like he may, he does a really good job at making it into a, like, you know, a, a comedic segment. Right. But like at the essence of yeah, it, the he's message, like, is ve- yeah, 100%. message is there. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, he's brilliant. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, he's brilliant. And uh, so are many others like him, but uh, yeah, it's crazy. You know I mean? Uh, how people can tolerate this, and uh, just I mean, I mean, we're talking about governors or you know, equivalent of our premiers, you know, and yeah, the it presidential candidates, right? Yeah, 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 I mean, yeah. The, yeah, it's yeah,
0: yeah. Um, what do you think? what do you want people to know about what's going on in Canada that you think would surprise them like you talked a little bit about certainly at the at the public service level but like what do you think people just don't quite understand um that you want people to really understand of things that are happening when it comes to systemic racism in this country
1: yeah i think top of my mind uh, would be you know the the most pressing issue in my humble opinion Is the question of indigenous peoples and their Mm -hmm. rights. Uh, And and I say that because uh, there's a whole truth and reconciliation report, you know, with like 94 Mm -hmm. recommendations, uh, very extensive, where the government uh, says they accept all of those recommendations, you know, and now they need to, uh, you know, implement those. that injustice has to be, you know, addressed uh, in a very significant way, and I feel that most Canadians uh, don't really appreciate fully the extent of the discrimination uh, and the treatment historically mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. today, and the legacy of, you know, the treatment today. Um, those who are not in that space, uh, I think the majority of the Canadians would not be in that space, and so they wouldn't understand yes mm-hmm. here's, here's what i would say uh, we all we i think we all accept the history that there's uh colonization uh although <laughs> this was shocking i mean in 2000 and, uh, 2009, okay uh while he was prime minister. Prime Minister Stephen Harper, Mm -hmm. he made the following statement. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is after, you know, in terms of the, in terms of, uh, I think it was just a year, a year before that, 2008, in terms of the uh, Indian residential school settlement agreement. Yeah. One of the things was an apology. And so he stated an apology in the parliament, if you could recall that. So about a year later, uh, this is what he's quoted to have said. We are one of the most stable uh, regimes in history. There are very few countries that can say for nearly 150 years they've had the same political system without any social uh, breakdown, political upheaval, or invasion. We are unique in that regard. We also have no history of colonialism. He said this? (laughs) Prime Minister Stephen Harper is quoted to have said that in, t- in t- two thousand and nine, hmm. right? That's 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 a quote. Uh, there and there, there are some other quotes as well, but uh, not not from him, but other quotes. But that's a quote that that is used by my 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 uh, colleague um, in the training that we presently doing. You know, for hmm. uh, the federal public service. Uh, sorry, the P- P- federal public prosecutors, I should say. Hmm. Um, so. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy, uh, you know, uh, uh, that type of statement, you know. Uh, so to answer your question, um, uh, coming back to your question, I don't think Canadians understand the significance of the issue uh, because that resolution is a resolution for all Canadians, not just mm-hmm. Indigenous peoples, right? Um, I teach this, uh, you know, uh, train, uh, uh, you know, previously at DOJ, but uh, uh, now I I do some consultancy work. And a lot of Canadians don't know how important these Indigenous rights are in terms of the treaties, the treaties that Canada has not honoured now for Mm -hmm. decades and decades and decades. And it's coming back to bite them in a big way. Mm -hmm. Canadians don't know that the government is having to spend billions and billions of dollars In most of the Section 35 cases, when I say Section 35, for those who are not lawyers, of course, uh, or deal with this uh, issue, Section 35 of the Constitution Act of Canada, 1982, uh, talks about uh, recognizing the existing rights of Indigenous peoples and and their treaties. Indigenous peoples have won major, major Section 35 cases uh, showing that the government of Canada has not honoured the treaties. Mm-hmm. Just a few months ago, uh, the Robinson-Euro Treaty, uh, uh, you know, goes back a long, long time ago, uh, hundreds of, uh, well, not hundreds, uh, at least a, a century and a half, um, where annuities had to be paid to uh, uh, Indigenous peoples in Ontario for mm-hmm. the land and the resources that were there. They were, uh, mm-hmm. Canada never had yet to honour that treaty. So litigation, fast forward, they came to a settlement in the summer of 2023 where the Ontario government is having to pay $10 billion and the federal government another $10 billion. Uh, Canadians you may see the headlines sometimes where they don't understand that there are many significant cases being won by mm-hmm. Indigenous peoples in terms of establishing their rights. And, and you know, they don't understand that Indigenous peoples don't really want, uh, uh you know, they're not saying, you know, get out get out of our land. Everybody mm-hmm. understands we are all here to stay.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But they want a, a shared, you know, a shared treatment in terms of what the deal was. The deal was basically, you know, you're welcome. Let us share. Let us live together. You won't interfere with us. We won't interfere with you. Mm-hmm. But you're welcome. But Canadians, uh, unfortunately, the government of the day, didn't uh, and, and, of course, the legacy of all of that, Indian yeah. residential schools but, and all of that stuff goes on. So I think that, to me, is the fundamental pressing issue that Canadians are not completely fully aware of.
0: I think another big gap, too, is with newcomers. In that, I don't know if newcomers have a good understanding of, yeah. you know, how we, like, the truth around conciliation of indigenous peoples, um, issues of injustice around indigenous peoples. I think that's a major gap. And obviously our population has grown so much over the last even couple of years. Um, that's my perception of that. But it, would you would you agree with that, that there is a gap there as far as how we um, raise awareness to newcomers and help them understand these issues and yeah. that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, uh, not only newcomers, but all Canadians, but especially newcomers, they don't necessarily, you know, have studied this or or know Mm -hmm. about this. You know, um, I certainly didn't know, you know, the extent to which, uh, you know, the problem existed until, you know, I delved into it. But you know, there's hope, uh, uh, Rupesh, And let me tell you what I mean by that. I have a uh, a six-year-old son now, but last year he was five years old. He was in senior kindergarten, and he wore he wore an orange t-shirt to school.
2: Mm.
1: And I asked him, uh, you know, I mean, I knew, but I was asking him, uh, you know, you know, what happened? Why are you wearing a an orange t-shirt today? Mm. He calls me Papa, you know. Uh, mm. So he says, Papa, it's a special day today. So I said to him, What's the special day? He say, you know, a long time ago, uh, children were not treated well, and some of them never came back home. That is why it's a special day. Now, that's a five-year-old, right? Mm-hmm. And he's learning about these things, you know, in kindergarten, you know. So that gives me hope that things are turning around slowly, yeah. slowly. But that's where we got to start, right, with these uh, toddlers, you know, and um, and hopefully, you know, uh, as they grow up, they'll, they'll know more. And, you know, with information available now, you know, uh, uh, it can't be kept a secret like it used to be. It, no. it was a secret, you know,
0: no, a hundred percent. And you know what, they're, I think schools and communities are doing a really good job with that. Like even my daughter, she's sounds like the same age as, as your son there. And, um, they have Orange and Street grandson. day and, 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 oh, grandson, sorry. and um, yeah. and, uh, they're, uh, you know she participates fully, and she has some some level of understanding of what it's about. And they have, you know, on TRC day here in Edmonton, their events, and we try to attend these things. And I think these things do make a difference, and they definitely uh, build, uh, give some hope to the overall situation yeah. for sure.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Now, when you when you were that age, and when you went to school, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, I, I take it that you know you you were not exposed to that.
0: Oh no, hundred percent. I would say Prakash, honestly, I probably uh didn't fully understand the residential school situation until maybe the mid to late 2010s to be honest like like fully started to get a really good grasp of it i started to become aware of it probably in the early to mid 2000s but in terms of actually internalizing it taking the time to really understand what happened um it wasn't really until the truth and reconciliation commission got going and i started to you know take the time to understand it and then of course like. Being as part of having worked in the public service, you know, uh, you, you get indigenous awareness training and there's more and more conversations about it. And, and that makes that makes a difference, too. But as part of my schooling, the history that the history that we were taught was all about colonial history and nothing about indigenous history, like at all. Yeah. Um Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So, yeah definitely yeah, definitely definitely go. a big gap there, yeah for sure and so I'm curious to see with my daughter when they start learning about history what what has changed. I would hope that the curriculums have haven't been modified and have started to change. Um, I don't know do you have any window into that as far as whether curriculums have changed on this front
1: I, I think they have. I mean, I don't know the details, but you know that's one of the recommendations of the TRC yeah you know uh, to 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 have uh, this uh, this training and teaching. At all levels, uh, including the schools, yeah, right? uh, including law societies and uh, you know public service and uh, yeah. So no, no, I, I I have reason to believe that I don't know to what extent, uh, but uh, yeah, no, it definitely has changed.
0: Yeah, I wanna I wanna now focus if you're okay with on your time in South Africa and then sort of as you kind of came here if that if that works for you. Um,
1: Absolutely, I mean your hands, uh, shoot.
0: I, I, we, we spoke about this a few months ago when we first connected. Um really curious about your time in South Africa and what uh, life was like during the apartheid period. Because I, I think I may have mentioned that my dad also lived in South Africa for many years, but it was a topic that we never really dove into. And I would say he was very quiet about it and... He kind of told me about like, you know, there's a lot of separation, but I don't know if he, he didn't really express anything. And I don't know if there was trauma there or if there was, um he just wasn't so active about it and, and thinking about it so much. I'm not sure. Honestly, I, d- I really don't know why we didn't talk about it as much as we, we should have, I think. But um yeah. yeah, so I, there's, there's a, there's a sp- space there personally where I'd like to kind of explore what life was like there. Um but Yeah. I don't think, the everyday person understands what life was like during apartheid time in Africa, South Africa. Sorry. Yeah,
1: you know, you're right. And that's my experience, you know, in talking to people. Uh, yeah. Um, they, they sort of broadly understand apartheid, but uh, they didn't understand on a day to day basis what it really meant. Um, so I, I'm at least a third generation, uh, of Indian descent that was born. My parents were also born in South Africa. Mm. And, and so, um, you know, the, maybe I start off by saying very simply, there were basically uh, four distinct racial groups in South Africa, uh, and 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 uh, based on that racial, uh, you know, categorization, uh, you enjoyed power or you didn't enjoy power and privilege. Mm-hmm. So right at the top of 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 of, uh, of the, you know, uh, I don't know what you call it, the ladder maybe, uh, of hierarchy, I should say. You would have the white population, as I said, was less than 10% uh, Mm -hmm. of the population. So very distant second, very distant second, uh, um, uh, maybe even I'll go there, only whites had the right to vote. Only whites had the economic power, military power, everything, uh, only to the whites, right? Mm -hmm. Very distant second, you would have the colored group. And and the colored was the mixed race group between the black and the white, right? Uh, and at best, they were about 3 million, but uh, and a very distant, uh, sorry, a very close third were people of uh, what we call Asians or uh, Indians, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, where uh, we were the third. But the very distant last, even from the third to the fourth, very big gap was the so-called blacks or we call them Africans, mm-hmm. because at certain time in the history of South Africa in the struggle for freedom... The coloreds, Indians, and Africans, we considered ourselves black because we were not white and we had no rights like whites had. So, But Africans are, the, and I'll re- refer to them as blacks because most people understand them as blacks, right? The, the biggest population, the most disadvantaged, the most uh, discriminated against in every aspect of, the, of what you can think about. And let me explain what I mean. You had separate residential areas called the Group Areas Act, So every racial group had to live in a separate group area. Whites took over 80% of the land. They deprived everybody of the land, right? 87% 87 of the land was, you know, for whites. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was a criminal offense for one racial group to be living in another area of a racial group of another area. Uh, You were contravening the Group Areas Act, which was a criminal offense. Uh, And then you had... (laughs) You you had the prohibition against the mixed marriages act, that was the name of the law. Wow! The prohibition wow. against the mixed marriages act. The act couldn't get any clearer, right? For itself. <laughs> yeah. 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 But <laughs> but in addition to that, Rupesh, they had the immorality act. The immorality act is not just not marrying somebody of a different race, but having any relationship. Uh, you know. Uh, uh, a sexual relationship, in particular, uh, you would be contravening the immorality act, and you would be prosecuted and jailed. So those were the big, and then you know, big uh, apartheid. Of course, mm-hmm. because we lived in different areas, you know, racialized areas, mm-hmm. our schools were segregated as well. So we only went to schools designated for your particular racial group. Right? Mm-hmm. And the amount of money spent on on the education of a white child was at least more than 10 times the education spent on the education on on a colored or Indian child and pennies for an African child Mm -hmm. because it was was a stated policy of the government that the blacks were not to be educated because they were meant to be slaves to their white masters. Mm -hmm. This was said in parliament, right? Mm I mean... I mean, that was so blatant. So the constitution was, uh, you know, um, uh, in such a way that it was racial discrimination Mm -hmm. and every other law on the books. But one of the most offending uh, pieces of legislation uh, for Africans especially was what they called the PASS laws, P-A-S-S laws, PASS laws. It prohibited them from... Uh, moving from one area to another area without a permit. Now, by the way, the Indian Residential Schools System, or the Indian Act rather, although it didn't have the past laws, it had the practice of past laws. And in a similar way, Indians, uh, sorry, sorry, I should say indigenous peoples, Yes. although the Act talks about Indians. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't want to confuse, right? They were not allowed to re- leave the reserves without special permission. Mm-hmm. In a similar way, The South Africans actually borrowed the Indian Act in in establishing the apartheid system. And so the past laws, the past laws was such an egregious uh, piece of of legislation that people uh, were banished. Well, let me me also back up to say there were so-called homelands or reserves created in remote parts of the country for different tribes of the African tribes. Mm -hmm. Zulus in Zululand, for example, Mm. right? And so that's where they were banished to but their males were required as laborers so they had to come you know uh, as in de- as laborers to the cities sure but their families were of course separated and so if their families wanted to visit them or, or you know come and see them mm-hmm. they were breaking the law and they were jailed mm-hmm. millions of people were wow. criminalized yeah millions and millions of people were criminalized Sometimes just looking for a job in a different area than what they were supposed to be. In 1960, March the twenty-first, 1960, there was a, a peaceful civil civil disobedience organised in a sh- in a place called sharpville mm-hmm. uh, That's a township, in fact, where my clients came from. Mm-hmm. Uh it's a black township, uh, about sixty kilometres south of Johannesburg. Okay, they arranged a a peaceful protest and a civil disobedience for the passes. They were going to uh, have a bonfire and burn their passes. Police lost their heads. Although this was peaceful, unarmed crowd, mm-hmm. they shot into the crowd. They they, they massacred people. Sixty nine people were massacred on the spot. Uh, subsequent reports of autopsies showed that most of them were shot in the back. Uh, hundreds were injured, and there was a world outcry about that. And the isolation of South Africa started slowly the boycott of South Africa kicked out of the Commonwealth of Nations mm-hmm. and, and, and other boycotts that followed over the, over the decades, to the extent, of course, that in uh, 1994, Mandela became the first democratic elected president. Mm-hmm. So growing up in South Africa was, um, was difficult because we didn't mm-hmm. have all the amenities. We did the best we could you know, with the resources we, that we had. But uh, I can only speak mostly for the Indian community and my parents and my family. Uh, They didn't have, they were not people of means. Uh, My father worked very hard. Uh, He was a very bright student at school, but never got the opportunity to advance himself. So he had to leave at standard six, Mm. uh, which is now grade eight Mm -hmm. uh, equivalent. Uh, My mom, even uh, I think grade, grade, grade three, she had to leave both very bright. So my parents, you know, did their very best to uh, give their kids an education. And I was the first person in my family uh, to be able to go to university. And that was because of my my, my parents' sacrifice. When I say sacrifice, I mean... Let me just explain that very briefly. Absolutely. My father worked in a factory. My father worked in a factory, gone from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., right? So we're very fortunate, my father got a, 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 what they call a dairy a depot where we sold milk and and other dairy products mm-hmm. during the day. so my mother would run this uh, the dairy, dairy depot uh, from from you know while my dad was gone to to work. so my dad was delivering in those days you would deliver milk door to door so my, my my dad started his rounds of delivery before he would go to his job at 7 a.m to the factory. And so his rounds became bigger, his delivery rounds uh, for milk delivery. Uh, those days we had uh, glass bottles and you would deliver door to door. Yep, yep. My father's rounds became bigger and bigger. And hence, he had to start his deliveries earlier and earlier, three o'clock, oh, four God. o'clock, two yeah. o'clock, yeah, yeah, yeah. one o'clock, right? And then he would finish his rounds and then go to work, come back. And then, he, you know, he, his body couldn't take it any longer. And the doctor said, listen, either the one or the other you have to give up because otherwise you're not going to last Mm -hmm. long. Mm -hmm. And so through that sacrifice, you know, I got the opportunity to go to university and I was one of the first few lawyers in my community there uh, having to service the, you know, community from every branch of the law, from wills and estates to uh, personal injuries, uh, to landlord and tenant issues, to criminal, to, you know, uh, you you name it, uh, you know, we had, to quickly learn every area of the law and practice every area of the law. But of course, the human rights part of it uh, took precedence because mm. almost everything was criminalized, you know, yep. and people needed the uh, uh, president. So I don't know if I can tell you more, but we were even discriminated against from moving. We couldn't go to the same restaurants. Mm. We couldn't go to the same swimming pools, to the same parks. Or mm-hmm. sometimes if you could go to the same park, the benches were separated or the areas right. were separated. Our beaches were separated. Beaches only for whites, separated from beaches only for coloreds, separated only for beaches for Indians and uh, beaches for Africans. You know, I mean, um, cinemas were, uh, you know, separate and unequal as well. Everything was separate and unequal. I mean, that was apartheid in a nutshell.
0: I've well, thank you for sharing that. I've I have so much I want to I say to this. First of all, the Sharpville um situation. I think there's it's I think it's commonly known as the Sharpville massacre, right? Is that from Correct. the 60s I think, right?
1: Correct. Yeah. Yeah, what yeah.
0: a what a horrendous
1: Anybody, you know, any of your listeners who are interested, they can just google Sharpville massacre 1960. Yeah. Uh they will find it.
0: Yeah. Um Just hearing you talk about your parents and your parents' sacrifice, whenever I hear about that sort of thing, even I get a little bit sort of emotional inside to kind of hear about like the sacrifice that people had to make for for their kids in that sort of situation. I imagine it's had a huge impression on you, right, Uh, just in terms of that sacrifice that they made.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, uh, and not only that, you know, we, we lived in uh, in extended families and communities and mm-hmm. everybody cared for each other. You know, there's a beautiful saying uh, in, in the African language called Ubuntu. It's mm. U-B-U-N-T-U, you know. Ubuntu uh, f- very simply said is, you know, I am because uh, of you and you, because of humanity, right? Yeah. Uh, you don't exist on your own. You know, we part uh, of each other. Yeah. And, and, and that spirit, you know, uh, and, and, and it goes back, and, and, and I try to learn this, you know, after the fact, unfortunately, while I was growing up, I wasn't interested in mm-hmm. finding out the true history of the lineage of your family and where they came from and how mm-hmm. they came, you know, and so forth. But uh, the sacrifice is, is something very common uh, yeah, amongst all the, all the populations, you know. Uh, I don't know so much about the whites, of course. They were the most privileged, uh, so mm-hmm. perhaps not so much but even the Africans, you know, uh, the sacrifice that they made, like you know, as poor as they were, because the policy of the government was not to give them even any reading material, writing material, pencils at school, you know, they they in uniforms. We all had to wear uniforms, and uniforms were expensive, and they had to do all of that on their own, and yet you would see them, you know, trying their very best to sacrifice. Now. Uh, you know, our families came. You know, uh, from India. Of uh, you know, some came as indentured laborers. Others came a little later. Mm. Uh, but the sacrifice and, and there's a history of that. You know, they were treated like slaves. You know, essentially, yeah. yeah. The indentured laborers. You know, and uh, and so there's a. Uh, I mean, the 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 sacrifice and, and the courage that they had. You know, to to make it possible for us to have better lives. You know, even in, in in apartheid South Africa, I mean, you know, uh, when I went to university and qualified, I wasn't wealthy, but I was living okay. You know, yeah. I, could, I, had, mm-hmm. I had a car, my wife had a car, we didn't have land or we didn't have a house. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we lived in a, in what we call a, a flat uh, or an apartment as they call it here in North America, you know, but we lived okay. We could, you know, afford decent things, you know, but it is all possible because of our ancestors yeah and the sacrifice that they made you know and uh you know so, so I, I just mentioned that a little bit sacrifice because sometimes people don't understand uh, oh yeah okay they must have sacrificed but mm-hmm. what did it really mean you yeah. know my grandparents for example right my 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 maternal grandparents mm-hmm. who we were very close to you know uh, growing up uh both not educated in english you know mm-hmm. uh, came as toddlers from india and 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 so uh they would sell toiletries at a railway station and they had the uh, push cart with wheels a trolley mm-hmm. we used to call mm-hmm. it a big trolley right yeah yeah um and and they would load it up in the morning with toiletries push it all the way by hand to the railway station and stand the whole day there selling candles and you know all sorts of other things that passengers would need on a daily basis Mm -hmm. and then in the evening come back you know after the day's work and 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 you know they went on and and my my mama which is my mother's brother uh you know he they sacrificed for him so that he could go to college and become a teacher Mm -hmm. you know and and that's the type of sacrifice that uh, you know people made. And yeah. my example is only one example. You know, the, the same can be said for so many other families, yeah. as I said.
0: Yeah, and I and I would like I have a sh- something similar in my family history of those kind of similar sacrifices of of you know in order to educate you know whether it be the oldest son or whatever, so that you know the family can kind of move forward and make progress. Unbelievable. Yeah. 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 Um. Sure. I want to. I want to very quickly just share my screen here because um, one of the cases, one of the most famous cases that it seems like you focused on was the Sharp Fill Six. And without getting yeah. into too much depth on this, because people can can certainly read into it. Uh, you wrote a book on it and you kind of do this. You're sort of the storyteller on this one. This is mm-hmm. six people who were found guilty of murdering, I think a deputy mayor, I believe in in uh, black, in black deputy mayor, yeah. Yes, and and then they're they're uh, found guilty. They were going to be sentenced to death. I think they're for many many years. They were kind of told like, hey, you're going to be you're going to be hung. You're going Exceded. to be hung, and yeah. you know, just imagine the trauma from that. And then you were the yeah. defense attorney, or the lead defense attorney on that. What from Correct. this story do you want the young people from today to kind of take away from this?
1: Oh man. Uh, never give up. Just never give up. You know, for the fight for justice. We uh, they they were wrongly convicted and sentenced to death. Uh, in terms of the law, mm-hmm. uh, they were they were sacrificed by the apartheid white government to make an example of people. Although the the trial judge found that not one of the six had committed the murder act of murder, nonetheless each one was sentenced to death, and which was unheard of in terms of even the own apartheid South African legal precedents. uh, They went completely against all precedents. They perverted the law, you know, just to make an example of these six. And although I had lost, uh, you know, at every level of the court, including the highest equivalent of uh, the Supreme Court of Canada in South Africa, Mm -hmm. uh, where I thought that they would intervene at least on the sentencing part, because there were so many extenuating circumstances, Uh, and uh, the death sentence was only meted out in the most extreme cases, Mm -hmm. we lost. The petition to the state president, who has the right uh, to grant clemency in certain cases based on the law, as well as on humanitarian basis Mm -hmm. or on political basis, he refused. It was PW Botha at the time. And the the lesson I I took away is, although I lost at every level, at the highest level, I never gave up because I believed in the justice of the case for the six. Mm. I mobilized uh, local organizations, communities, churches, student groups, women's groups, you name it. And I muscled the support of the international community, so much so that uh, even countries that were pro-apartheid South Africa, in particular the United Kingdom, Mm. Margaret Thatcher at the time, uh, the United States, Ronald Reagan at the time, mm-hmm. and Germany at the time, Chancellor Cole. I targeted those three in particular to reach out to them on, 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 on legal and humanitarian basis to intervene personally, and which they did. Mm. And we were in court. My clients were going to be executed uh, on a Friday morning, March the 18th, 1988. Well, literally within hours, the previous uh, afternoon, we are in court uh, asking for a stay of execution based on a legal technicality, and we want uh, a, a temporary stay of execution.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: then the political pressure was mounted, as I talked about, international pressure, and uh, for, fortunately, uh, you know, uh, their sentences were commuted. commuted very lengthy jail terms and i was mm-hmm. still unhappy because i i thought they were unjustly treated and therefore i wanted to document something and and that's why i wrote the book
0: yeah amazing um i look at i went through these pictures look at you over there look at
1: <laughs> a lot of hair yeah at yeah, the time <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah how, that how picture actually you... that picture was taken at the united nations Okay uh, General Assembly, I was testifying before the United Nations General wow. Assembly about the six and about atrocities in South Africa. Yeah, you can't see that, but you can see a tag uh, hanging on my jacket lapel. okay that's that's actually uh, at the United Nations.
0: Yeah amazing. And then there's a picture of here with your hero Mandela.
1: Yeah, tell, tell, yeah.
0: tell us about maybe this encounter or like, did, did you get to interact with him at all? And what was he like, I guess, very quickly?
1: Very, yeah, very little, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I knew Winnie Mandela better than him, of course. You know, my, my, my law firm in where I used to practice uh, in South Africa, we represented the Mandela family. Mm. And, and so, um, uh, but he was in jail most of those years, as you know. Mm-hmm. So I knew Winnie well and I knew uh, I represented her once, actually. Uh, when my senior partner was out of the country. Uh, This encounter was soon after his release, actually, not too long after his release. Uh, Interestingly enough, um, uh, Canada was one of the first countries he he visited after his release. Mm -hmm. And he acknowledged the Canadians' contributions to the fight, uh, to the anti-apartheid struggle. And uh, he recognized that. And uh, this was a meeting uh, in his hotel room, actually, in Toronto. Uh, you know, and and Winnie, of course, knew me, and uh, she made it happen. And uh, the encounter wasn't lengthy; just very brief. I mean, he had yeah. the world, you know, uh, wanting him at that time. You yes, know? and and so this was in Toronto, yeah. And uh, I just by by I uh, just noticing, you know, and I think I have a picture with him, but I have a, a beautiful blurb there by Archbishop Desmond Tutu mm-hmm. uh, and Nadine Gordimer. And 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 those two, as well as Mandela, of course, are all uh, Nobel laureates. You know, uh, just happened that they all know. Yeah. So yeah, it was a it was a privilege and and an honor for me. And he knew, of course, me. Uh, you know, and uh, uh, it was wonderful. Just yeah, to be acknowledged by him for, for the work that I had done.
0: Amazing. Um... Prakash, I want to I want to end on a uh, one more topic. It's kind of hard to make it quick on this one, but a big <laughs> injustice that's happening right now is in Israel and the Palestinian conflict. I know there was a webinar you kind of did recently on this one, but like what's going through your mind right now as you see this conflict? Um yeah, I don't know, is there anything that you want people to think about uh on this one?
1: Uh yeah, yeah, just very quickly, you know. Again, uh yeah uh, you know um do you mind if i just go back to the to, to the book that you just showed before a yeah. your question yes uh if you're going to be rounding off with this question because sure. uh you know i wrote the book because i felt the injustice and so forth and so forth and just to fast forward after this was published in 1990 right and just to fast forward all this uh my book has been adapted into a full feature movie and uh no no not, not, not just the movie uh, the the book itself because the, the focus of the story is actually a little different from the book because I don't tell my story. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was arrested uh, for exposing the injustice of the apartheid mm-hmm. system. I was arrested without charge. I was detained. I was kept in solitary confinement. Uh, you know, I was tortured. And they tried to falsely implicate me with false charges of treason, which fortunately didn't work. Uh, they said I had illegal arms and ammo in my apartment, and they tried to plant that. But fortunately, while I, this, while I was in detention, fortunately, my family and extended family prevented that from happening because they, you know, they they suspected that the police had arrived in the pretext of a search, but they wanted to plan something. And so, so fortunately, that didn't happen. So none of that is in the book because I didn't want to take away focus from the six, right? Mm-hmm. But the movie is going to be uh, my character and my wife's character are going to be the central characters of essentially a david versus goliath story where a small young lawyer uh takes on the this mighty machinery of the apartheid regime and 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 the price he and his family has to pay for this so i just wanted to mention that you know we are at a very advanced stage yeah <laughs> uh very blessed that all the pieces are falling into place and it yeah. all goes well uh, we hope to shoot uh, in this year 202014 and hope to complete the the shooting of the movie this year do you think but you'll let's be a see all the pieces you do you, do you ahead. think
0: you'll do you think you'll be a part of it in like the, in in terms of actually being on screen or or what what's your sense of that
1: <laughs> in in terms of being on the screen i don't know but i uh, you know um i don't know about a cameo or anything yeah. of that sort yeah but uh they need a younger version of me of course to be playing my role right but i'm'm I am I'm one of the producers uh, I will be a consultant uh, hopefully on the set as well so I'll be actively involved in that but me being on the screen itself is a question mark I, I, I don't know I've yeah. never talked about it what a but, what a neat uh, experience and
0: I'm so glad that yeah. I'll be looking forward to seeing that for sure and I hope I hope people tune into that that's an, that's yeah incredible. no no I,
1: yeah. I will definitely want to. Publicize it as widely as yes. possible when it happens. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Fantastic. Yeah. So uh, yeah, go so ahead.
1: Coming back to your question, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's a very broad question, which I yeah. like because uh, you know I can just hone into sure. because there's a lot of history to that, right? Yeah. I think I alluded to this earlier in my our conversation, uh, where I believe in in the rule of law. Mm-hmm. I believe in human rights. Mm-hmm. I believe in international humanitarian law, and mm-hmm. that's the starting premise for me, right? Uh, And in what I heard, uh, you know, uh, a young lawyer, a young black uh, lawyer uh, based in Ottawa uh, reached out to me and and talked to me about the concern about some law students, some young lawyers being threatened, uh, you know, uh, in terms of their job opportunities. And I thought that, you know, as a legal profession that was wrong, you know, where where, uh, people need to start seeking justice. And, and, and the rule of law. So that's why I, I organized uh, you know, the, the session uh, where I had some wonderful experts on it. But let's fast forward that because uh, I wanted to show and, and have a platform for young lawyers or non-lawyers mm-hmm. because even doctors are being affected by this. Even other people are being affected. Mm. It appears that only those who are pro-Palestinian uh, are being more uh, ostracized and threatened. Mm than any uh, than uh, anybody else so that's why we had the forum to to let people know what is the law what is the rule of law and and what is expected and you know uh you're not alone in this that, that's the message i want to give mm-hmm. so coming back to the situation now uh the palestine israeli issue i couldn't be more proud of the south africans for having filed this case against mm. israel uh, uh, before the icj international you know uh, Court of Justice, especially just given all the
0: history that you just walked me through right exactly <laughs> like, yeah exactly yeah. exactly,
1: yeah. but not not only that Rupesh, they have filed a brilliant brief a brilliant petition application before the court mm. uh, it 's a masterpiece, and i don 't say that for myself only experts around the world are saying that
2: mm.
1: you know and and when I say that, oh, what do I mean that by the experts? I'm talking about Professor Raz R A Z Siegel. He's Israeli. He's he, he's got a unique expertise because he's a he's a historian. He's an expert on the Holocaust mm. as well as a expert on genocide. Mm. And he has he has said, you know, uh, and he got 55 other world experts to issue a statement to that effect as well. I talk about a guy by the name of Professor Francis Boyle B O Y L E. Mm-hmm. Francis Boyle is is British and he was the first lawyer to win an interim order at the ICJ on genocide. And what he 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 studied the papers and he listened to the application uh, as well as the the the, re, the rebuttal by. And this is what he said. He said uh It's a solid case. It's an airtight case because of the intention, you know, that's been uh, proclaimed by so many senior uh, uh, government officials from Mm -hmm. the prime minister to the president to the minister of defense and onwards Mm -hmm. because there's two things that's needed here, right? The intent and the actual act of, of genocide to qualify as a genocide. But as you know, it's an interim order. They're not asking for a finding of genocide. Right. Just for an interim finding, a plausible finding that the actions are are, are characteristics of genocidal acts. Mm. So they file a solid, solid case. The defense, unf- uh, according to the experts again, was very weak, you know, uh, in legally speaking and factually speaking. What I find interesting is Canada's position in all of this, and 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 Canada's position. Uh, previously, starting, uh, they said no, no ceasefire, you know, continue the massacre, no ceasefire, because Israel has got the right to self-defense. Right? And that has been shown to be uh, uh, not true, because they don't have the right to self-defense in the international law, as found by the ICJ way back in 2004, because they okay. are an occupying territory, right? It's not like Russia uh, and Ukraine. Israel is an occupying territory, which which changes the dynamics. And mm. and, and this went to uh, a separate issue, but it went to the ICJ, and, and they found, no, Israel, you don't have the right to self-defense. Mm-hmm. You are an occupying territory, right? So anyway, I won't go into the nitty-gritty of this, right? All this to say that Canada f- has moved slightly from the right to self-defense to say, okay, no, Israel, you've go, you got to apply international humanitarian law in your response, right? But they were still, to some extent, supporting. But it's recently, I think they've moved even a little further from that, where they say, you know, we will we will accept the ruling of the ICJ. But what your audience need to know is this. The uh, South Africans filed their case before the ICJ on the 29th of December, 2023. Mm-hmm. A few weeks before that, right, Canada filed, and Canada has been very active in, in the uh, International Commun- uh, Court of Justice on, on genocide issues. And Canada, together, jointly, it was Canada, it was the United Kingdom, it was the Netherlands, it was Germany, and I believe mm-hmm. Denmark. So six countries jointly filed uh, an a, a, a intervener mm-hmm. in support of the finding of genocide in the Myanmar case. That was brought to by the country of Gambia. Mm. What is interesting when I looked at that application uh, as joinder, intervener, was so interesting because they are arguing for an extended definition of, of genocide, especially as it relates to children, right? which supports the case of South Africa to the hilt. Mm. The second thing they say, I mean, I'm just summarizing the two main points I want yeah. to make, is that they're asking for a broader definition as it relates to children because they, the effects on children are so much different, you know, uh, long-term and, and so forth. But the second thing they talk about is the intent requirement as an essential element for the crime of genocide. They are saying the court should apply a more broader definition. They should not make it such a high standard as it to make it impossible to prove the crime of genocide. Right, So they're asking for a broader definition for the intent part. In the Israeli case, South Africa versus Israel, mm-hmm. you have so I mean, as South Africans did a really good job in enumerating all the intent espoused by them. But in my humble opinion, even if they didn't say a single word, the actions are so gross on the ground mm-hmm. because the courts, as you know, Intent is very rarely uh, pronounced. So you take the indirect evidence, circumstantial evidence uh, to make the inference that there was an intent, mm-hmm. right? So you, in that case, you have both. So I think, you know, it's going to be interesting because what is also interesting is the same judges, uh, essentially, some of them are retiring at the end of this month, mm-hmm. but essentially the same judges made a ruling not too long ago Maybe three years ago, two years, three years ago, in two twenty four now. On the Myanmar case, mm-hmm. in my respectful view was a much weaker case before them than what the South Africans brought. Okay. And they gave the interim order. Right? Mm. So I'll see how they would want to distinguish themselves if they don't.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's
1: politics at place, you know, at the highest levels. Yeah. A lot of political pressure being uh, applied, you know, so who knows. But those are my brief overview, uh, you know, comments, uh that the rule of law applies to every country. Yes. There should be no exceptions. You know, even though the fact that, you know, um, uh, and, and, and what is heartening to me is that uh, many, these are Jewish scholars. I, uh, there's William Shabas, uh, Professor William Shabas, who's a Canadian, mm-hmm. uh, world expert on, on, on this topic as well. And he said uh, he would be stunned because he's appeared before that court as well, yeah. he would be stunned if the if the South Africans don't win an interim order, mm. you know. So um, anyway, uh, I'm not an expert in this field, but I, I, I go by what the experts say and I look at you know objectively as I can, you know, the the case that has been brought and you know. Uh, so that's where I am. Uh, no country should be excluded. Not the United States. Not Canada. Not the United Kingdom. Why should the global North be excluded from from from, from a finding? Sure. And you know, earlier I said it doesn't matter who the perpetrator yeah. is. The yeah. rule of law requires, you know, that uh, there be equitable treatment. So it'll be interesting to see.
0: What teeth does the ICJ actually have? Like, what um, with the rulings? Like, do do states yeah. and countries have to follow the ICJ in any way? Or
1: a good question, really good question. They just make the order like any other court, right? They, okay. they, they don't enforce. They don't have an enforcement mechanism. It's yeah. the United Nations Security Council that they'll have to come to. Okay. And the United and the Security Council, you know, according to what has been the history, uh, the United States has protected Israel at every level. They've vetoed every resolution that you can think of. Uh, but uh, if that happens, it is my understanding that it then goes to the General Assembly. And I have no reason to believe that uh, the General Assembly will overwhelmingly, uh, you know, uh, abide by the ruling and hopefully Mm. enforce in some respects. What's interesting is, uh, uh, what's it, France, as well as now, I just saw, was it yesterday or the day before, the Canadian government says they will abide by the ruling of the ICJ. Mm. What does that mean? Mm. Does that mean they will help enforce the order? That's that's what I would think, right? Yeah. So it'll be interesting. Right? Yeah. But you know, the, this this the way it's played out, it's it's exposing the the different worldviews from the global South majority world to the global North and the Western countries, yeah. and I think they're going to be exposed for their double standards and their hypocrisy.
0: Prakash, this is uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. I'm completely humbled by, uh, yeah, just your just your availability and presence on my show, uh, just understanding your story and your insights on on some really important topics. Thank you so much for making time. I'm so excited to see whatever comes out of this film. and And you're welcome anytime to come back. I would love to have you when that film comes out and we can talk dive more into your story uh, than we did today. But really thank you so much for making time for me today. I know the listeners and the viewers are going to get so much out of this. Um, Yeah. yeah, Just appreciate you so much.
1: No, thank you for the invitation. And it's my honor and pleasure uh, to contribute in the small way that I can. And, uh, you know, if, uh, if I may say this, uh, I thank you for taking the time to give me a platform and uh, commend you for having this podcast. And, uh, you have been nothing but uh, a true professional uh, from the start to the end uh, in, in the way you have uh, prepared this. And uh, the questions that you asked were so relevant to the point, uh, you know, and uh, really well done. And uh, it's it's my pleasure actually to have, uh, you know, been with you on, uh, as I said at the start, uh, two nobodies, you know, uh, getting together. Uh, but I truly mean that and, and I hope, you know, that uh, you will be able to get, you know, a vast viewership of uh, what you what you uh, are planning to do, and uh, I know I don't know the details, but I was happy to talk to you about it, and uh, I can't be uh, more happier than uh, talking to somebody like you, you know, in, in the way mm-hmm. you have prepared this and the way you presented it, and uh, I felt it was such a free flowing uh, discussion and questions, you know, it uh, it was really well done. Kudos to you. <laughs>
0: My goodness. Thank you. That means, that means a great deal, Prakash. Um, Yeah. I hope to see you in the future for sure. Thank you, Prakash. Definitely. Thank you everyone for for joining today. Uh, Really appreciate you listening to this episode. Like, subscribe, do all those wonderful things and we'll see you on the next one. Thanks. Take care. Bye.